Hi, I'm Carla Jones, Senior Director of Federalism, Homeland Security, and International Relations here at ALEC, and I'd like to welcome everyone to ALEC's Across the States podcast series. We're here with Colin Grabo. Colin is a research fellow at the Cato Institute's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies, and he's here to talk about the Jones Act, specifically the law's implications for national security. Thanks for making the time for us, Colin. Well, Carla, thanks for having me on the podcast. We recorded a podcast with you about three years ago. I think it's podcast number 24 that listeners might want to access as a sort of great backgrounder on the Jones Act generally. But for listeners today, can you give us a 30,000-foot overview of what the Jones Act is and why it was enacted? Okay, yeah, so the Jones Act is section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, which essentially restricts uh, domestic waterborne transportation. So transportation between two US ports to vessels that meet four conditions. They have to be uh, flagged and registered in the United States. They have to be built in the United States. They have to be at least 75% owned by Americans and they have to be crewed by Americans. Um, now, the background to this law is, like I said, it was passed in, in 1920, but in fact, this kind of protectionism goes back uh, almost to the founding of the country. One of the first laws passed by the United States uh, put very heavy duties. You could, you could use foreign ships, but they taxed them very heavily. And then in 1817, they just did an outright prohibition. You could not use uh, foreign ships. They had to be American, uh, crude, American-built ships. And we've basically had that law ever since. Uh, the difference between back then and today is that back at the founding of this country, the United States was a very competitive shipbuilding country. Um, we had some of the best quality, uh, cheapest prices, uh, very, very efficient, competitive um, shipbuilding and shipping. So being forced to use American ships was really not that big of an imposition uh, because it was, it was a low cost alternative anyway. But as time has gone on, that has changed dramatically. Uh, especially since the change from the days of wooden ships uh, to you know modern ships made of steel, uh, modern propulsion. We're not using sail power, wind power anymore. Um, so t unlike you know the, the very beginning of this country, today American ships to build them cost anywhere from four to five times more than one uh, purchased in a foreign country. Uh, they cost about five times more to crew. American crews are, are compensate a lot more than uh, their foreign counterparts. And uh, their overall oper operating costs are about three times greater. So you take these ships that are expensive to build, expensive to operate and crew. Uh, you apply very limited competition. There aren't a lot of ships to choose from. You know, um, there's something like 54,000 ships in the world, only 93 comply with the Jones Act. So, you know, a fraction of 1%. Well, all that adds up to very expensive shipping. And that's a big deal for a country uh, as geographically vast as the United States with, uh, you know, major population centers along its coasts. Um, you know, we are the world's biggest economy in terms of GDP. We're also just a big country, period. This is a country that stretches from, you know, Guam to Maine and Alaska to Puerto Rico and everyone in between. Uh, so making shipping, which is traditionally a very efficient uh, form of transportation, expensive, basically makes it very difficult uh, and expensive for Americans to trade and do business with each other. So it's, it's a real economic burden. It sounds like there are a whole lot of real world economic effects of the Jones Act. Would you mind going into a little more detail 
how does the Jones Act affect the average American economically? Sure. Um, so I'll take that last point first. How it affects the average American economic, economically is that, again, it makes it um, more difficult for Americans to trade and do business with each other. You know, distance is a barrier to trade and we need efficient transportation to overcome that barrier, you know, allow people in say, you know, New York and California or, you know, Alaska and Puerto Rico to, to do business with each other. And we're taking what should be uh, a very cost efficient means of moving goods kind of off the table. If you look at statistics, something like only 2% of American freight is moved by water. That's pretty incredible when you think about the fact that, or, sorry, moved by ships. I think it's something like 6% or 7% moved by water total. That's pretty incredible when you think about the fact that we have thousands of miles of coastline. Uh, we have the Great Lakes. We have you know non-contiguous parts of the country like Puerto Rico, Hawaii, and Alaska, Guam, that you can only get to by, uh, by boat or airplane. Um, so, so it's a distance, to, it's a barrier to trade, it makes it more expensive. And the result is um, when you factor in, after you factor in the cost of transportation, oftentimes it doesn't make any sense to buy from your fellow Americans. So for example, we have uh, you know, documented examples of people in Puerto Rico buying rice from China instead of the Southeast United States, because once you factor in the cost of transportation, doesn't make any sense to buy the American product. Uh, we even have these examples uh, of it being impossible to access you know, American energy. Um, Puerto Rico and New England, for example, have to import liquefied natural gas from foreign countries because there are no Jones Act compliant LNG tankers. So there are no ships to move it from the United States, one of the world's biggest exporters of liquefied natural gas, but we can't get it to places in the United States that need it because we don't have the ships to move it. And, and we don't because they're just, they don't make any economic sense. They're too expensive to build and operate. So they just, they don't happen. Um, so it's a barrier to trade. So it, it hurts our lives in multiple ways. It, uh, you know, makes, in those last two cases, makes energy more expensive. You have to move it from longer distances, you know, instead of buying it uh, from, from the Gulf Coast, Puerto Rico, you know, last year they imported it from a far away as Oman, uh, you know, halfway around the world. Um, you know, it makes, it makes uh, gasoline prices more expensive, motor gasoline. Uh, I know last year, I think there was analysis done that said on the East Coast, it, it increases the cost of gas by 10 cents. Um, so it has lots of effects kind of spread all over the place. It makes it more difficult for, uh, you know, the timber industry to move uh, wood products from the Northwest United States to other parts uh, of the country. Uh, so instead of Americans buy Canadian wood because again after you factor in the cost of transportation it doesn't make sense to buy american so i could give you know lots and lots of these individual examples and i think cumulatively they add up to a quite substantial burden and before you go into decimating local economy are there some hawaii examples you could give us sure uh you know hawaii again you know last year it came out that um for example we uh put Prohibitions, we put a, a ban on the import of Russian oil. Uh, it turned out that Hawaii was getting one third of its uh, oil from Russia. Uh, I think this is difficult to, very little, uh, substantially less from the United States. I think, again, uh, this has to be at least partially attributable uh, to the Jones Act. Um, we have the, maybe the most notorious example or uh, amusing example in Hawaii, we have farmers there that have to use, uh, they, they put their cattle, uh, one of the biggest cattle uh, ranches in the country is on the big island of Hawaii, and they use airplanes uh, to fly their cattle back to the mainland uh, for processing. 
um, because ocean transport is, is so expensive. They use, they do use ships, but they say it's about the same cost for an airplane as to put it on, on a ship. Um, it, it, it's that expensive. Um, so, and, you know, Hawaii, of course, it's an island. Everything that they import, um, you know, the overwhelming majority has to come in by ship. Uh, the U.S. mainland is the biggest trading partner. So it means that, you know, everything they, they buy is just that, you know, uh, more expensive. It's basically a tax uh, that they pay to to buy goods from the rest of the United States. And are there local economies that would be hit hard with the repeal of the Jones Act? Well, uh, a couple of things about that. Number one, I, I, I struggle a bit with that argument. If for no other reason than uh, the U.S. maritime economy is so small. Um, I mean, if you just take figures from the uh, U.S. maritime industry themselves, just take them at face value, there's something like 95,000 Americans that are employed uh, either in vessel operation or in shipbuilding and repair. Um, and, you know, this is this is everything. This is ferries, this is tugboats, this is everything. And, you know, you split that among 50 states, it's an average of, you know, 2,000 jobs per state. You know, in the context of a 20-something trillion dollar economy uh, with, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of people employed, you know, it, it's around here. It's very small. Um, I also think it's inaccurate because, even if you got rid of the Jones Act, um, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden any foreigner, any foreign vessel can come work in the United States. There's still tax, U.S. tax laws. There's still U.S. immigration laws that act as a barrier uh, to some of this. So the idea that, say, you know, the tugboats all going up and down the Mississippi would all of a sudden be crewed by you know Chinese people or Filipinos, I don't think that's quite accurate. Um, and then, you know, lastly, if we're going to do that kind of analysis, we have to think about, okay, you know, there are job losses. I mean, there are job losses for all kinds of things. If, if we, uh, someone invented the cure for cancer tomorrow, that would put oncologists out of a job. But we all know that that would still be a good thing. Technology puts people out of a job all the time, um, and we're, we're, we're better off for it. Because on net, it leads to new job opportunities. If we could have you know, efficient domestic trans, uh, water transportation and make it easier again for Americans to, to trade with one another, engage in uh, economic activity, it would be just an absolute boon for jobs. Make it easier for Americans to do business with other Americans. That's good for jobs. Couldn't agree with you more on that. And one of the other concerns has to do with national security. Um, how would you answer that, that repealing the Jones Act would undermine America's national security posture? So, so the, the argument for the Jones Act in terms of national security is, is usually threefold. It's that uh, that U.S. built requirement I mentioned earlier, that ensures that in time of war, the United States has shipyards that can build and repair ships. Uh, the U.S. flag requirement means that we have uh, a fleet of American ships that the military can that has available to transport supplies and equipment to wherever they're needed in the world to support our troops. And the U.S. crew requirement means that we have trained mariners who can crew U.S. sea lift ships to transport those goods where they're needed. So that, that's a theoretical angle in, in favor of the Jones Act. But I think it falls short when you actually put it up against reality. That's the theory to the observable reality um, in terms of shipbuilding, um, there are very few Jones Act ships built. You know, last year, there were two Jones Act ships built, one uh, for the Great Lakes, which was the first Great Lake ship built in almost 40 years, and one for the ocean. This year, uh, we're on track to deliver, your shipyards are on track to deliver one ship. In 2021, there were zero ships uh, delivered. Next year, I think there's supposed to be zero ships. 
Uh, over the last 20, since the year 2000, I think U.S. shipyards collectively have averaged something like two and a half or three ships per year. Um, to put that in context, uh, the biggest shipyard in South Korea, one shipyard this year, I believe I read recently, they're on track to deliver 47 ships uh, this year. That's one shipyard, whereas all American shipyards combined are, again, you know, two to three ships in a good year. Um, so it's, I think, plainly falling short there. Uh, we look at numbers of U.S. mariners. There was a study done by the government back in 2017 that found if there was a conflict that went beyond six months, there would be a deficit of 18, at least 1,800 mariners um, to crew the U.S. SELA fleet and commercial fleets at the same time. Um, we also, if you look at just the number of Jones Act ships, well, back in you know 1980, there were something like 257 Jones Act ships, I believe, and today we're at 93. So everything is trending in the wrong direction. And I think by any objective, uh, by any reasonable metric, the law isn't working. And then I think on top of that, I would just add in a few kind of practical uh, considerations. Uh, so the head of the U.S. Transportation Command testified before Congress uh, two or three years ago that in wargaming scenarios that they don't plan on using Jones Act ships for a very simple reason. And that's that uh, if the military is using Jones Act ships, well, who's going to take those goods to Hawaii? Who's going to transport oil uh, you know, from the Gulf Coast or, or gasoline from the Gulf Coast to Florida? Um, so you know, it imposes some significant costs in the economy if, if they use these ships. They really don't want to. And in fact, in past conflicts, uh, the past few decades, they really haven't. Very, very few Jones Act ships are ever used. And then as far as the shipbuilding component, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to build ships. Um, but if, if the notion that we're going to have Jones Act shipyards crank out ships for the military in time of war, it better be a really long war. Uh, these Jones Act ships take two to three years typically to build. In fact, the, the Jones Act ship, that the one that's due to be built this year, it was supposed to be delivered in 2019. It was ordered in 2017. Um, so, you know, it's taken, you know, three, four years to build. Um, so I just think we you match up the theoretical case for the Jones Act against uh, the observable reality, it, it falls short. And just to be clear, the Jones Act doesn't cover military warships that are built as military warships, correct? Correct, yes. Uh, there's a separate law that governs uh, the construction of uh, warships for the U.S. Navy and, and for the Coast Guard called the Burns-Tollefson Amendment. Uh, but no, the Jones Act does not apply to our naval shipbuilding. And in fact, you know, the, the vast majority of shipbuilding that takes place in this country is is navy uh shipbuilding it has nothing to do with the jones act you know in terms of revenue uh as of i think two years ago something like 78 percent of all shipbuilding industry revenue in this country came from government contracts it's not the jones act that's driving um you know their shipyards and that's particularly true of our big shipyards the ones that say build aircraft carriers and submarines and destroyers, uh, most of those build zero Jones Act ships. Uh, Newport News that builds aircraft carriers, they haven't built a Jones Act ship since the 1990s. And when they did, they lost a bunch of money on the project and essentially said never again. Um, Bath Ironworks uh, up in Maine, they haven't built a Jones Act ship since, a commercial ship since 1984, I believe. Um, so most of these, they, 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 they haven't built, you know, Jones Act ships in, in decades. That's not their bread and butter. Uh, what's keeping these shipyards afloat and keeping them going is government contracts. It's not the Jones Act.
So from a national security perspective, it's almost like maximizing friendshoring with countries like Japan, like South Korea, might be a better way to support commercial shipbuilding. Yeah, you know, what's interesting, a couple of things are interesting here. Uh, number one, I think some people have a perception that, um, okay, you know, U.S. built ships, they, they cost more, there aren't many of them. But hey, it's good, it's good to be able to build ships yourselves and not have to depend on foreigners to do it. Um, but the reality is we are dependent on foreigners. Uh, fortunately, all these foreigners are our allies like South Korea. Um, if you look at these Jones Act ships, they are assembled here in the United States, but the components that make them work, you know, like the engine, uh, different, you know, the thrusters, um, uh, you know, the anchor chains, all kinds of things like that, they are foreign. Um, just to give you one example, uh, I want to say like 15 years ago or so, there were some tankers built at the Philly shipyard in, in Philadelphia. And each one of those uh, requires something like, um, you know, uh, 500 sh containers worth of, of things from South Korea to build each one um, and and 20 something bulk shipments of things like, you know, the, uh, the engines and major components. Uh, so we absolutely are dependent on foreigners to build the ships because of all the stuff that goes in them. Um, and, and then also I just point out that right now, in fact, the U.S. Navy uh, is looking at signing shipyard agreements with some of our allies in India, in Japan, um, because they want to have access to the, those foreign shipyards to repair um, their ships. You know, if um, a, a conflict happens with China, and I hope it doesn't, but if that happens, um, the U.S. Navy, they're looking to foreign shipyards to help them out. So I just think we have to ask ourselves, if, if our Navy is interested in using foreign shipyards, shouldn't average Americans be able to use them too? And you just brought up China. That's, that's something that our members are exceedingly concerned about. They see China as a national security threat, homeland security threat. They're concerned about Chinese influence operations. Um, is there a Jones Act component in terms of countering China, countering Russia? Yeah, an oft-heard uh, talking point from Jones Act supporters is that we need the law to kind of keep China at bay, and uh, that the law serves as a bulwark uh, against China. And, and frankly, I, I find it kind of amusing. Um, something that goes underappreciated is that uh, Jones Act shipping companies, particularly those that operate in the Pacific, like Matson, which serves Hawaii and Alaska, and Peisha, which also serves Hawaii, um, they send their ships to Chinese state-owned shipyards for repair and maintenance. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Jones Act ships are very expensive. You know, a container ship that costs, uh, you know, $40 million overseas is more like a you know, $200, $225 million ship here in the United States. So when ships are expensive, people don't want to buy new ships. So they hold on to their older ships for longer. And these older ships, well, they need more maintenance and they have to go get repaired more often. Well, the way these Jones Act uh, shipping companies solve that problem is send them to China. And so they send them to China because China, it's cheaper. And then they take the money they save and they use their own PR campaign saying we need the Jones Act to help stop China. And you kind of have to laugh a bit. Um, but beyond using the... The, the shipyards for repair and maintenance. Uh, by my count, there's over 20 Jones Act ships that have used, you know, Chinese components in their construction. So again, this idea that, hey, 
U.S. built means you know we're, we don't rely on China. We don't well, we're self reliant. Again, that's an illusion. Um, uh, something I, I come back to a lot is a, a saying by an economist, Henry George. He said that protectionism teaches us to do ourselves in times of peace what our enemies would try to do it to us in times of war. And I think this applies perfectly to the United States and China and the Jones Act. Um, I don't have any special insight into Chinese thinking, but I have to think that to the extent they've thought about U.S. shipping, they probably think, wouldn't it be great if we could basically put an embargo on the United States and get every country in the world to refuse to sell the Americans some ships or to prevent them from using their ships so Americans could transport goods within uh, the United States. Well, of course, China doesn't have to lift a finger because the Americans, we've already done it for them. We put an embargo on ourselves. Uh, we can't use foreign built ships. So you know, we have to pay these high prices, which uh, is not good for promoting a maritime industry. Uh, it means that we cannot, it, it severs our domestic supply chains. You know, like the, the example of liquefied natural gas, we can't even send American gas to other Americans because of this law. Uh, you know, without the Jones Act, we could use uh, allied tankers to do that, but we can't. Um, so I think it very much plays into their hands. And with regard to Russia, um, you know, last last February, the same month, February 2022, Russia invades Ukraine. Puerto Rico that same month was importing natural gas that originated in Russia. Uh, that's crazy. That's, and I think it really sums up a lot of the dysfunction uh, with the Jones Act and, and, and the impetus and the, the, just the real, the real deep need for change here. And is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about the Jones Act? Yeah, I, I would just you know kind of wrap up by saying it's it's absolutely an economic burden. Uh, I think there's really no debate about that. Uh, I think you took a poll of economists. I'd be surprised if you find a single one that would be in favor of the Jones Act if it's purely about economics. But I think that if we closely scrutinize the law, that also reveals it's a national security failure as well. And I think that ignoring that in a time of high geopolitical tensions, kind of as you mentioned, those discussions with ALEC members is a luxury we really can't afford. Um, I, I think that national security really demands that we reevaluate this law and assess, is this working for us? And I think if we, once we perform that assessment and we scrutinize it, we'll find the answer is no, it's not. And at the very least, we need to deeply reform this law, if not just get rid of it wholesale and, and kind of revisit our maritime policy and kind of start over again. And Colin, if we were to repeal the Jones Act, what would you replace it with? Or if we were, were to reform it, what tweaks could we make to it to make it more functional? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, so... You know, I, I, of course, I worked at the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank, um, and in Libertopia, we just get rid of the, the Jones Act entirely and kind of wash our hands with it. Um, but I do recognize there are legitimate national security needs that need to be met. Absolutely, I think the military should have uh, the, you know, the ships it needs to transport goods um, and material and supplies to where they're needed. And uh, right now, we already have something called the Maritime Security Program, which provides a subsidy to 60 ships. These are non-Jones Act ships because they're built in other countries, but they still have American crews with an American flag. Um, and it gives them a subsidy of $5.3 million a year. And in exchange for that, uh, the military gets the right, in, in case of a war or national emergency, to use those ships. And you know, my attitude is we should go to the mil military, go to the Pentagon, and say, how many ships do you need? And then we give it to them. And uh, we just, we pay for it. And I think that would not only be more effective, I think it'd be more fair. You know, right now, a lot of the burden of the Jones Act is 
particularly felt by people in the non-contiguous uh, parts of the country, like Puerto Rico, Hawaii, Alaska, Guam. Uh, so I don't think that's fair. I think national security should be paid for transparently. Um, and it would just be a much more efficient and effective uh, means of doing things. But short of that, you know, what are some what are some other options on the table? Uh, you know, we often talk about the Jones Act in binary fashion. Are you for it? Are you against it? Do we keep it? Do we get rid of it? Um, but there's a whole spectrum of options between uh, status quo and full on repeal that I think would be very helpful and uh, useful. Uh, I think uh, the, the, the logical starting point is revisiting that U.S. built requirement. This is a really strange requirement. There's no other form of transportation where we have um, uh, such a measure. Uh, of course, you can uh, use a foreign built airplane, uh, you know, an Airbus airplane, for example, to fly within the United States, uh, foreign built trucks, cars, you know, whatever. But for some reason, if it floats, we've decided it has to be built in the United States. And I think that fundamentally, if we want to encourage a, uh, a, a vigorous, a strong U.S. merchant marine, the absolute worst way to go about that is force them to pay outrageous prices for new ships. That just doesn't make any sense. And it's not even, as we discussed earlier, um, paying much dividends for the U.S. shipbuilding industry, given the, the, the lack of, of ships being built. Um, I think another uh, potential reform is uh, enacting a waiver system for those situations uh, where you want to move something within the United States, but there's no American ship available. Uh, natural gas being, the, the liquefied natural gas being the perfect example. I want to move American natural gas. These people in Puerto Rico, there's no Jones Act ship to do it. Let me use a foreign one. Um, this isn't, um, you know, pie in the sky thinking. Uh, Canada, Mexico, lots of other countries have these kinds of exemptions. If there's no a domestic ship available, then you can use a foreign one. This is just, I think, very common sense. It costs the U.S. maritime industry nothing because, again, this is only in those cases where they can't provide that service. Um, so that's another uh, thing we should do. I think Puerto Rico should be given an exemption. Um, you know, the U.S. Virgin Islands has an exemption um, right next to Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is the only U.S. territory that is fully subject to the Jones Act. Um, so I think that's wrong. They, they have very minimal voting power in Congress and they have a 40% poverty rate and we're subjecting them to some of the world's most expensive shipping. Um, so I, I just find that misguided on economic grounds, just on fairness grounds. You know, in Washington, we have a lot of discussion about uh, how do we best help Puerto Rico. And, uh, you know, people want to throw money at the problem. I think, you know, a good starting point is how do we just stop hurting them? That sounds like a good thing to do. Um, so those are a few things off the top of my head that I think would be uh, really just common sense ways of, of going about reforming this law. Um, again, you know, my, my preference is, is get rid of it, but I recognize that you can't uh, always get what you want and there has to be compromise. And I think there are a lot of uh, common sense compromises here that would be in the interest of our economy and our national security. Uh, again, you know, enabling Americans to better access American energy, that's an economic win, that's a national security win. Uh, allowing Americans to get foreign-built ships uh, to help grow our merchant marine, that's a win for our economy and our national security. So I think these are all options that should be on the table. And are there any other countries that have Jones Acts in place? So cabotage laws, restrictions on the use of, of foreign ships, that is common. But the Jones Act is very unusual in its severity. It is considered uh, by the World Economic Forum to be the world's most restrictive example of a cabotage law. Um, for example, no other country in the world requires that all the vessels used in domestic trade be built in that same country. 
Um, in fact, I think only maybe three or four have any kind of uh, domestic build requirement. Like Peru, I think, for example, requires that you get a bid from a local shipyard uh, before you buy from a, a foreign shipyard, things like that. Um, uh, and even, you know, China, which is considered, you know, very protectionist, mercantilist country, uh, something they do is you can, uh, under certain circumstances, you can use a foreign ship to say, if you want to export something to another country, you can take the good from one Chinese port to another Chinese port before it then gets loaded onto another ship to go to a, a foreign port uh, to help, you know, they do that to encourage their exports and make it more efficient. Hong Kong, which is of course, a defective Chinese port is exempt from these cabotage laws. So you can use a foreign ship to go from Hong Kong to another Chinese port. Um, and then also, I think it's worth keeping in mind that uh, other countries, these cabotage laws just aren't as impactful. For example, if it's uh, Germany, I mean, uh, has you know very little coastline or the Netherlands, um, although those are bad examples because the EU allows transportation by other EU members. You know, in the Netherlands, they can use a German ship or uh, a Spanish ship or something like that. But, you know, a few other countries have the, 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 the maritime um, disposition that we have. And, you know, they have the geography that just lends itself to the use of shipping. So there's just a much bigger opportunity cost for the United States to have these kinds of laws as other countries. You know, Jamaica, they, they lifted their cabotage law. It just wouldn't have that big of an effect. Small country, um, and probably not moving a lot around the island by water. But uh, the United States, big, uh, big problem. And I think that's something we should really keep in mind. So it's, it's an unusual law. And I think it's a much more impactful law than other countries. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today, Gotlin. And to our listeners, I want to thank you for listening to another Across the States podcast. And I would also suggest that you listen to Across the States podcast number 24, Reforming the Jones Act, also with Colin Grabo for a deeper dive on this topic.